0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon and this is one-on-one. On One. That I will never
1: forget. I'm telling you, there's nothing like riding a fire truck around town, celebrating the state championship with your community members, with people you see when you walk around town, with people you see when you ride your bike, people you see when you go to the water ice station and go get a slice of pizza. You shared it with more people than just your team and their family members. That's what I remember.
0: And our guest this week is John Crispin, former Pittman High School basketball star, went on to play at Penn State and UCLA, now an analyst for ESPN and Westwood One, also does work on Sirius XM. John, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Look, I have a lot of time. This is my hibernation season. Uh, It's
1: what I refer to as my blue-collar season. It's not particularly blue, though. It's kind of more khaki uh, it's not white, it's not blue, somewhere in between because I do play a lot of golf. Uh, so so while I'm cutting the grass in the morning, I might be swinging the clubs a little bit in the afternoon.
0: <laughs> talk a little bit about the, and it's funny. I covered you for a year at Penn State when I worked up in state College, and your personality screamed TV <laughs> down the road. And here it is. How are you enjoying the analyst role, the studio role? You do some talk show like, it, you know, do you enjoy the overall? What's your favorite part?
1: Well, I, I think my favorite part is the responsibility I have. You know, it, it's a responsibility to influence, and we live in a world of nonsensical, moronic influencers. I mean, pick a starting point, and good luck trying to find an endpoint. I mean, they're everywhere: YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Wherever you look, you will find moronic influencers, and I think the game is too special. Uh, I appreciate what I got from the game, but I also appreciate the people that taught me the game my dad, my grandfather, when I call a game, I hope my grandfather's proud of what, what I am on TV. Cause what I am is honest. What I am is considerate in the sense that I consider the layers beneath the surface. I don't just look at the surface. I don't just see what is. So I, I look at all that as a responsibility and I think it's a job that can be done pretty easily if you just show up and talk about the game and you used to play and you're, you're a big name, but I think if you really invest in it, you could serve it well. And if you serve it well, you made it better. And I think if more of us focus on the, on, on not the opportunity, but again, the responsibility, I say this a lot. Uh, I said, this, this is not opportunity. This is responsibility. When you get put in the chair in Bristol to cover college basketball for an entire Saturday, It's not opportunity, it's responsibility. And you have to serve not only the audience, but you got to serve the game well. So I love the fact that I actually have responsibility in the game of basketball at a high level. Obviously, we all want to be the best at what we do. We all want to make more money, get the best games. That'll come if you do it well. Because in the world of sports, and the rest of the world hasn't really followed this, in the world of sports, cream still rises, man. And, And that gives me hope. Do
0: you see the game differently now?
1: Oh, totally differently. I mean, look, as a kid, you view the game in a way that only serves you. And the only common denominator that you have with the rest of your team in that moment is the fact that you want to win more so than anything else. Uh, I wanted to win, and that connected me with a team. It connected me with coaches. It connected me with my brother in particular because he wanted to win too. But our, our ideas and our trust in terms of how to win is different. So as a player, it was always about how things affected me and my ability to help us win, how things affected me and my ability to validate myself on the basketball court. There's so much selfishness out there as a player that it's, it's hard to function when you look back at it, where you stop and you say, now as an adult, I look back and go, man, I made it so much more difficult for myself as a player. I should have just been cool, done my thing, And I would have been 10 times better. So there's that aspect of it. Now, when you eliminate self, you see the game clearer. You just, you see rhythm, you see flow, you see music. You know, it's, my brother and I always say basketball's jazz, man, where it's like, you know, one guy gets a drummer, gets it roll. And then next thing you know, a little riff flows off to the saxophone guy. And now you see the game clearly. Whereas before you saw so many specific things because they were so relevant to me as a player. And what made me happy, what made me successful. So, undoubtedly, I see the game completely differently. I see the layers beneath the surface, which also include the dynamics of people. Never really considered the dynamics of people as a player. It was more along the lines of, uh, "Here's our starting five. Everybody else get in line." Like that. That was the mindset as a player. Like, if you're the best, you're going to play. If you're not, don't hurt us. Like, it's it's a weird way to look at it, but that's what you do as a player. As a broadcaster. I am such a small, insignificant, you know, cog in the wheel that if I can just do my part, make it better, and have a long shelf life and influence the people that want to be influenced in a positive way, I mean, it's awesome. The the job I get to do is great. And yes, absolutely, I see every aspect of the game. I don't want to say completely differently because I always like the aspect of fun with basketball. And I know Joe's the same way. My brother's the same way we want it to be fun we want it to be inspiring i still apply that when i call games so so if i look around the court and i see bad body language i don't see fun I, that's a team they may win the game but they lost you know what i mean they they didn't they got to win but they didn't beat their opponent like i look for teams to actually go out there beat their opponent have a good time doing it play with one another get into a good rhythm and flow and then see what basketball really is all about it's not about structure it's about feel It's not about running a set play. It's about adjustments. And when you start to see those things to come together amidst all the other dynamics at play, I think it's fascinating. Look, I'm a history and a philosophy guy. I study more history and philosophy than I do basketball. And I think there's more relevance to history and philosophy to the game of basketball than there is the 20 basketball books that I have on my shelf behind me. So I look at every aspect of it, and because of that, I do. I see the game completely differently, including everything beyond the game but also in the locker room, what you take outside of the locker room and the dynamics of a team. It's totally fascinating. It's
0: probably the one thing that keeps me from coaching. I'm curious. Was there a moment when you realized you see it differently? That's a good question because now I have to think
1: about it. I think what happened, if I go back, I started in radio at Fox Sports Radio. I got a couple television gigs with the Big Ten Network. It was the first time I worked in television. I think this was the start. It was one of the first years of the Big Ten Network. So it was like 08, 09, somewhere around there. And I tried so hard to do a good job where I got so consumed in my preparation that I didn't even see the game. I didn't even see the players. I saw their stats. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't see their tendencies. And, and it was almost as if I was trying too hard. And I felt like a player again. Whereas like, this is what happens when you tell a guy – Basically, I felt like I was the guy that said, Don't miss this shot. Well, when you say don't miss the shot, you try try too hard to make it. And when you try too hard to make it, you miss. And I felt like that's what I did in my first year was I was I was trying too hard, where I didn't see the game at all. I just saw my job. I saw what I thought I had to do. And at the end of the game, I'm 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 kind of stepping back going, I don't even know what happened in this game. That's That's not a good thing. I barely try nowadays. At this point in my career, I barely tried during a game. And I, and I, what I mean is, like, I do my work early. I, I, I equate the way I do my job today as me defending a guy in the post in college. If I'm covering Morris Peterson in the post, I got to do my work early. Because if I have to do my work late and I scramble, I'm in a bad situation, I lose. So I need to fight around, force him to catch the ball in an area where I can defend him. So I do my work early. I prep. I get to know people. I know what's going on with a team. I I know the dynamics of a team. I study things that most people don't study. But all that came from me taking a step back from doing my job and just focusing on the game, watching tape, like instead of saying what happened, just say why, how did that happen? And then keep saying why until you can't answer it anymore. And then you realize every single play has about 50 layers. And I would say it was somewhere in between the transition of me going from the Big Ten Network back to Fox Sports and then doing Time Warner Cable Sports Sports on the West Coast just to do a few games to kind of do it as a hobby. I wasn't even taking it that seriously. It was a hobby. I was doing some West Coast Conference games, some Mountain West games. I even did high school state championships. I took it seriously in terms of the responsibility, but I didn't over-prepare to do a specific job. I prepared for the teams and I just called the games and it was, and it felt like I just showed up where all these other guys come in with 50 million notes. I didn't really have normal notes at all. They're, they're just thoughts and they're themes. And within those themes, you see the themes play out. You speak to that. Well, those were themes that I saw as I watched tape, not trying to prep for the game from a detail. I don't care what someone's mother had for breakfast when he went for 35 points in high school. like You hear those silly stories because they're in the game notes. I stopped reading game notes. I just watched tape. And and that's where I started to see the game clearly because all of a sudden you're saying, I don't need you to tell me about them. I need to see them. And I need to talk to the people that will talk to me, meaning coaches, as to what I'm seeing. So I don't ask coaches questions as much as I have conversations. So I don't say, hey, what, what are you going to do about a seven or eight-man rotation? Uh, you, you know, you want to get to a seven or eight-man rotation in the NCAA tournament. Like, that. that's obvious. That's in the game notes. That's fine. That's easy. But what did you see and what did you feel when you watched tape? And then confirm your thoughts and your feelings with the coach. You get much better clarity. So somewhere along there, the, I, this was just a hobby at the time. I was working full-time in commercial real estate at CBRE in Los Angeles. I could only do weekend games. It was a hobby and I got really good. And not only did I got really good, I saw the game clearly. And it got to the point where ESPN was calling saying, like, look, we'll give you West Coast games. We'll give you pac 12. We'll give you West Coast Conference if you want to do this more. And I I ended up eventually leaving commercial real estate because it was at a point where I was like, "I, I feel like I'm better than most of the people that are doing some of the high level games. And I talked to coaches who say, you see it clearer than anybody else. So I felt like I was meant to do this, but I needed to find the humility. I needed to separate myself and what I always liked as a player from what's actually happening on the floor, kind of go a little bit more macro. I think we like to get micro to show off what we know. The reality is the game is played in one in the gray. So all your details that are black and white, they're nonsensical by nature. So just function in the gray, see and feel the adjustments, call what you see. Think about what you think before you say it. Like there's a lot there that I think I learned probably also because I was in business. You know, I I think Brad Stevens, like how how did Brad Stevens become such a great coach? And I look back and go, you know, he was in business. He was away from the game. He developed a, a, a more global perspective on people and the operation of things and the operation of people together that basketball is easy. Like we're not launching rockets, man. We're playing basketball. And the adjustments are there. They're obvious, so long as you know how to see them. So I I do think somewhere along there, making this a hobby and less of a stressful job made me a much better broadcaster and a a much better mind when it comes to basketball.
0: I'm curious, because I'm a play-by-play guy. You're an analyst. And I'm curious, looking at it through an analyst's eyes, you do radio, you do television. Mm -hmm. How do you see your role change from one medium to the other? Because radio, in my opinion, is a play-by-play man's job. Television is an analyst job. You're supposed to lead. How do you alter your approach depending on the medium?
1: Yeah. Well, the last few NCAA tournaments I've done with Tom McCarthy. You know, he's a Phillies television broadcaster and Scott Graham, uh, pros, absolute pros. And, and I have worked with great play-by-play guys in radio. And the adjustment is ultimately see what you still see, but say a lot less. And you have to paint the picture. Look, I think. Radio and television, I think radio, the whole, let me step back. The play-by-play and color guy is definitely radio because play-by-play is telling the black and white. He moved here, he did this, he scored. Here's the score. This is what's going on, right? He drew the picture. I just need to add little bits of color over time so that people listening can pick up on the themes of the game within the black and white. So now there's a little color to the picture. That's the way I view it. Now, it's, it's hard to do because sometimes you've got to be really quick in and out. But I like to find the themes early in radio. And the perfect time for, for that is to sit back in the first few minutes while Scott Graham or Tom McCarthy is telling you what color jerseys everybody's wearing and, and really setting the stage. Right? They're setting the table. I would say the difference, uh, the difference between television is I set the table the most in television. Because you already see what you're seeing. You know, the play-by-play guy doesn't need to do that. It's yeah, Here's the game, but I'm telling you, look, this is what you're watching. And over the first few minutes, I just I point out themes. Right? Transition defense has been a struggle that was going to be an issue coming in. So far, they haven't really been able to communicate well defensively. Something to keep an eye on going forward. I point out the themes. But pointing out those themes early is setting the table the way a play-by-play guy would in radio. And it's, it's interesting. It's fun. I love television. I would say I love the opportunity. I get to be able to call the NCAA tournament. I could probably still call that a responsibility uh, for Westwood One. But I love television because you can really help people see clearly. The things that people think matter, the, the guy that beat this guy to the basket and he scored at the rim, yeah, that's what happened. But I can really tell you how and why it happened. And I can tell you whether it even matters or not. That's the interesting thing. There's a lot of things in radio. I can't tell you that something matters because you can't see it. I just need to help paint the picture with some color. In television, I can drive a point home to say, no, I I know he keeps going. I know he's got 20 points at the half, but the game plan coming in was ultimately let anybody beat you other than these two guys. And those two guys aren't beating you. And this is a two half game. You've got to be okay with this. And I've got people saying, you're crazy. That's insane. Uh, But in the end, what happens? Like I've watched enough basketball to know that nine times out of 10, that guy doesn't go for 40. He goes for five in the second half and everything changes. So it water finds its level type of thing. So I I like both, but ultimately in television, I really have the most responsibility. And I think I do better when the lights are on.
0: So you mentioned your brother, Joe, also a star of Pittman, who's currently the head coach at Rowan. And I said this to you beforehand, and I mentioned half of this. When I covered you guys and somebody asked me what's going to happen with the Crispin brothers in 20 years, <laughs> Joe's <laughs> going to be a coach. John's going to be on TV. Yep. It's one of the few things I've gotten right in my life. Joe has been on the podcast in the past. Growing up in Pittman, I'm curious, I know sports was so big in your family. Earliest basketball memory.
1: I got to say, earliest basketball memory was going to my grandfather, Cliff Crispin's games at Camden County. And in addition to that is going to my father's games at Glassboro High School. My father was a a head coach uh, when he graduated college. He went to Villanova, played football at Villanova. He came back at 21 years of age to coach his alma mater at Glassboro. And he had great teams early. He won a state championship his first year. Now, he'll tell you, he goes, they won in spite of me. But my dad was a good coach. I mean, to the point where he's one of the most respected superintendents of schools in the entire South Jersey area because he's not afraid to make decisions. He lets you go. He empowers people. Uh, at sometimes I, one of the things I always say, like I, I, I joke that I'm a manipulator and they say they call me the mob boss. And I say, look, I'm, I don't manipulate people to do bad things. Sometimes you have to manipulate people's mindset to help them get out of their own way. And I think those are things that I learned from my father without knowing I was learning them, right? When you look back at watching practices and, you know, I remember going to practice and playing and watching these grown men. Uh, Now they're, I mean, you look back and they were 17 years old, 18 years old. They were grown men to me. I watched my dad have command over them and he had a command. There was something there that stuck with me that was more than just the fun part of basketball. But I also, I was a part of him taking those kids home. You know, some of them lived in the projects in Glassboro and we were driving them home because it wasn't safe for them to get home on their own. And there were little things about that that opened my mind to the game where the game wasn't so, it has to be played this way. I think you saw, I saw college players at Camden County College I saw high school players, high level guys, guys like Larry Bland, who, who really, I mean, had it not been for some tough situations in his life, might have been one of the greatest ever come out of South Jersey. I saw great players, but I, I saw a respectable command from a coach and a leader. So I actually have that embedded in my head more so than dunks or long threes. They didn't have threes at the time anyway. Um, so there's so much of that embedded in my head just from being around the game as a kid. It. it What I remember the most was being present, but I think what I really remember the most was seeing my father and my grandfather be in command of this great game. And I think to a degree, Joe's certainly doing that in his own way, but I do it in my own way in broadcasting. I always say, I don't have to coach to teach. I can be a broadcaster to teach. I don't need to be a coach to influence. I can be a broadcaster to influence. The question is, will I ever? Get to a point where I miss what I saw my father and grandfather have, and now see my brother have, which is the camaraderie and responsibility to individuals. I think that's something that I do remember. Um, there's still guys that come to my parents' house that just stop by to say hi to my father. They graduated high school in 1983, and they still stop by to say hi to my father. Like. That sticks out to me, and that sticks out when I think about growing up young and and having that basketball influence. Well, it's ultimately it's it's a very positive influence because it's less about the game.
0: You didn't just play basketball growing up. I think football, baseball, you played uh, in high school, but those were my it, better
1: sports. Well, I was just good.
0: Was yeah, yeah. I I I got beat up uh, a lot.
1: I mean, I still I still struggle quite a bit with with what I dealt with because we didn't know any better. Um, and I also went to Pittman High School where my freshman year, I was our starting varsity quarterback in safety. And when your team's not that good, your safety's making a lot of plays. And when you're an egocentric, prove yourself young freshman, you scored the first 10 touchdowns of the team's season, You, it's never enough. So I, I put myself through a lot. I broke three vertebrae in my back in high school. Um, so I, I missed most of my senior year. I had more concussions than, than anyone would be allowed to have today. Uh, 10 documented concussions by the time I was 16 years old. We didn't know any better. Um, so I would have gone to college to play football and I would have pitched because I threw 94 miles an hour as a sophomore in high school. So a lot of people ask me about that because we had scouts at every game and there's still scouts I see in the business and they're saying, hey, we remember you as a pitcher. I came to your game and you threw 94, you're a sophomore we would have drafted you had you played baseball. And it's like, yeah, but I wasn't meant to do that. You know, Clearly, if I was meant to do that, it would have worked out that way. Um, I was meant to play basketball. And then I get to the point where I go, I don't know if I was really meant to play basketball. I was meant to be involved in basketball in some way. I got to play it at a high level. And I got to play it at a high level, not because I was a great player, but because I was a great athlete. And I think that's something Joe developed into a great player. I was always a great athlete and it came easy until it wasn't that easy anymore. And I think that's why Joe's career went the way it went in terms of the way he took off in college and then professionally had a great professional career. Not only was he that good because he worked at it and made himself that good. He persevered a lot. And and I think the challenge for me was things came too easy. Like sports came too easy until they weren't anymore. And at that point, I probably, in terms of basketball, I wasn't playing my best sport anyway. Baseball was my best sport. Football was next. And then basketball. Um, But ultimately, like I I grew up in a basketball family. My grandfather, Cliff, who went to Temple, uh, he went to Temple on a baseball scholarship. Was also offered to play football there. Ended up playing on two Final Four teams at Temple Basketball. I, I likened myself to Pop more so than anything else. And Pop ended up as a basketball coach and an athletic director. And I always wonder that of all the things it's like, yeah, he helped coach, you know, baseball and softball from time to time. It's community college, you know, but really he was a basketball coach. And there's something about basketball that is still special to me. That is unlike anything else. Uh, You have a responsibility to self and your team. It's the closest thing. And baseball is kind of like this to a degree too. It's the closest thing to a individual team sport. Where you, you you've got to you've got to have a calculated selfishness, where you need to be selfish when you need to be selfish, and you've witnessed some of that with one of my high school games. Uh, you need to be selfish when you need to be selfish, but you also need to have feel, and back it down, and, and know how to play off one another, know how to feed one another again, know how to do the things that my father did really well, right? Empower others, you know, ma- uh, maximize the potential of somebody else. So I think. Everything I've done in life outside of the success I had in football and baseball, everything I've done in my life has been to guide me back towards a career in basketball in some way, shape or form. And I think I found the right one, but I will tell you as an analyst uh, being around this game, there's nothing I'd want more someday than to have the responsibility of coaching young kids. Uh, Whether those young kids are, 14 to 18 years old, or those young kids are 18 to 22 year olds. Uh, kids need a good influence, someone that actually cares to make not only their lives better, but the game they're playing better. And right now, we have a lot of agendas out there. So if there's anything motivating me to get into that world of coaching that my grandfather and father and now brother have been a part of, it's it's probably the need for that. Uh, And so someday that'll probably happen. It'll probably happen when ESPN just doesn't uh, rehire me or (laughs) resign me. Or I say something that is not okay in the crazy world today and get fired.
0: Time for a break on -on one-on-one. We will continue our conversation with John Crispin right after this. And we are back on one on one. Our guest this week is former Pittman High School basketball legend, former Penn State Nittany Lion, current ESPN basketball analyst, John Crispin. I'm curious, growing up, Joe's a couple of years older than you. You played together Pittman, you played together Penn State. Were you guys kind of a team growing up or were you competitive with each other oh. growing up? Yeah, uh, both. My, so my father started our in-house
1: basketball programs in Pittman. We had nothing. We had no in-house youth programs. And with Joe being a third, I guess he became a fourth grader. My dad said, look, I, I'm going to have both boys in these programs. And Pittman has nothing. He started the entire in-house program that is still going on today. And uh, he always put me as the younger. So Joe was playing in the fourth and fifth grade team, uh, or wait, third and fourth grade league. So I was in second grade. He would put me on a team with the better players and put Joe, who was probably the best player on the floor at this point, with the worst players. So he brought out a competitiveness in the both of us that was, I expect to play with Joe at his level or more and beat Joe. And Joe had to work harder to beat me. And it was never about this. and, And Joe, whether he admits this or not, I know he would. It was more about beating my team than beating the other guys on my team. And that's ingrained, man. That's because we share a room. That's because we share life. You know, when you share life, you're, you're fighting for resources on a daily basis. You know, we don't think of it that way. But w- when there's food on the table, man, you, you look at that guy next to you and, and like you're fighting him for whatever leftover French fries are there. Like the competitiveness is built in. Then you share a room. Then you play together and you work out together and then you're pinned up against each other like that competitiveness was brought out of us uh, through my father and kind of the way he structured things. But in the end, we always ended up playing together. I would play up and play on his teams. And then when I became a freshman in high school, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm starting on the varsity team. Joe needs the best of me for him to be the best. Sophomore year, his senior year, he needed me to score 20 plus points a game so he could score 30 plus points a game. Otherwise, there's too much attention on him. So there was the competitiveness That was still present, but there was also the the camaraderie and the the teamwork that we had that you can't train or coach. It's just got to be there. Uh, We had it. It was special. I I would say at Penn State, Titus Ivory was the best teammate I've ever played with. But my personal greatest teammate is my brother because he made everything better and worse at the same time. Right. And and the worst part just made me anti-fragile. And Joe probably used that term, too. We both love it. it. It made me impervious to struggles because Joe made me tougher and I wanted to play up to his level. So when he's first team all Big Ten, I expected to be there. You know, when Tim Legler's coming in to work out with us and I'm a, I'm a sophomore junior in high school, I expect to win. And frankly, sometimes I did like in one on one battles and stuff like that. I give all the credit in the world to Joe and the competitiveness that we had. We still have it, by the way. It's still there. We just respect each other a lot differently. So the competitiveness in terms of what I do, the level I do it, I know where Joe wants to go. Joe wants to be coaching games that I'm calling. And so there is a little bit of a healthy competitiveness there. The difference is like we're just older and mature. Like There's a little bit more clarity in the process now, whereas before it was so much about what we could get out of doing what we did. Now it's a little more JFK. You know, it's a little bit more like, how can I serve this game? It's Joe saying, look, I don't like the way the game's played. How can I help it? Like, that's what he's doing as a coach. And that's what I'm doing as a broadcaster. So ultimately, I think that connection brings us closer than we've ever been. And literally, if I look to my left, you know, he's out the backyard. He lives right behind me. I bought a house right behind my brother. I mean, we grew up fighting. We fought on the court. We fought in the car. We fought in the bedroom. We fought like we shared rooms until Joe was out of the NBA and married. For crying out loud! Um, So, you know, there's there's no greater teammate. And to this day, he still will text me during games to correct me when I've been wrong. And it's not to correct me when I'm wrong; it's to help me elaborate on a point that I'm trying to make. And the reality is, Joe has no idea that I only have like ten seconds to get this in. So he's adding things that I couldn't get in anyway, Um, but, but he does, he appreciates what I do and I sure as anything appreciate what he uh, not, not only has to do, but actually does in in his world.
0: So I'm curious, you're starring in three sports. You're playing with your brother. The Crispin brothers are becoming a thing in high school. The attention's coming. You talk about scouts. Did you feel pressure in high school or was it just kind of, this is how it
1: works. I think I think there was more of an expectation for me than there was my brother. I think my brother spent so much of his high school career trying to prove that he could do it at the next level, trying to prove that he was that good. Joe, as he progressed, validated me in so many ways. So, I mean, the best way to look at this is why did I get all the recruits, or, or why did I get North Carolina Duke, Kentucky, everybody recruiting me out of high school, yet they didn't look at Joe. Well, Joe had already started in, in the big 10, his freshman year. And they look at what Joe did in high school. And they said, well, his brother scored 35 and he gets three dunks a game. Like this guy's a freak athlete. He's a star quarterback. Go anywhere to play football. Does 94, 95 miles an hour. A base. I was the great athlete that was easy to justify. Joe wasn't that guy. So Joe's process was different in the sense that he had to work every step of the way. And I think there was always a little competitiveness and also, you know, it's okay. We could talk about it now. There was also an animosity where Joe got there early, stretched out, did ball handling drills. I showed up and said, let's play. And the worst thing that could happen is I won. You know, so, so that brought more out of Joe, that more brought more fire out of Joe, but it also established a ceiling for my abilities. You know, and I think that's, that's, what's interesting. As I look back, I don't think I ever felt pressure other than the desire to show people how good I was. I never felt the pressure Um, I wanted to win number one, but there's always that part of you that says, I know I'm the best. Let me, let me show you. Uh, I don't, I don't feel badly about that. I think as kids, you you have to be that way to a degree. There has to be a, a sense of entitlement. There has to be an ego. There has to be some arrogance. I just think as you grow up, it needs to be a little bit more of that humble arrogance, right? Where I understand my insignificance, but I also know what I'm good at and I'm not backing down from that. As a kid, you don't have the humble part. Uh, so I don't know if I, I think part of that was, I almost felt because I was so good at things at an early age and I could compete with kids older than me, I almost felt entitled to be great. Now, eventually, as I said, that runs out because you're into people that are really great. You know what I mean? Like you run into guys that are six, eight and do the things that you do better than you do it. Um, so so ultimately I, I hit a—I hit a ceiling I'm not sure if Joe's hit his ceiling yet because I think his big, biggest strengths will be in him as a coach, not a player. I think he played to learn how to coach because I do think he's going to be a great coach. Uh, but I, I don't ever remember growing up with the pressure like that. I think I felt the pressure a little bit more at Penn State, particularly my sophomore year when I knew we were good and there was always goofy stuff going on with, you know, I'd have a great game and then get benched the next game. There, was always, there, there were always things that made me fragile. Uh, and I wish if I could go back, I, I wouldn't be as consumed by those things. But in high school, that, that's also a trick question, given the concussions we talked about before, because I'm not sure how much I remember.
0: <laughs> Do you have, well, that being said, uh, you won a, You mentioned winning. You won a lot at Pittman. Uh, you had great individual games. I was talking to you beforehand, the 62-point performance against Pensgrove. Yeah. And regardless of your answer to this question, I want to talk about that, but what is your favorite memory from your days at Pittman? Like if you're thinking back to your college, to your high school days, what's at the top of the list?
1: This is, this is the answer that everyone should have. If you're doing things for the right reasons, and a lot of times you think you're doing things for the right reasons until you glorify yourself a little too much and you realize like, no, nah, this was all about me. What I remember the most in terms of my most proud moments we're riding a fire truck around town and having the entire town come out and support us. And it's not that they supported us. They felt pride, right? Like there were lines out the gym to get into our tiny little 1200 seat. If we could even get over a thousand in there, we're probably breaking fire codes. Um, there were lines to get to our games. We were fun to watch. We, we were, we were, we were crazy before crazy became cool. And I'm talking about the Golden State Warriors and the Splash Brothers and shooting 33s a game. Like we did that in high school. No one was doing that in the mid 90s. We did. So there's a lot of pride in that. But ultimately, when you get on a fire truck after winning the state championship for a school that prior to Joe getting there won two, two games in two years, those people feel pride too. The same pride you feel in representing them, they feel in being represented. And they feel honored and represented for winning. And that I will never forget. I'm telling you, there's nothing like riding a fire truck around town in February, March, celebrating the state championship with your community members, with people you see when you walk around town, with people you see when you ride your bike, with people you see when you go to the water ice station and go get a slice of pizza. You shared it with more people than just your team and their family members. That's what I remember. And and ultimately, I think that's what guides me now is like, Look, we live in we live in a time where the world is huge, but at the same time, it's tiny and small because it's all connected. I like to make my world as small as possible. Like I can't fix everybody's problem, but I can make where I live a little better. So if I can represent where I live in in a positive light, I get to experience that fire truck ride. Every time I go downtown and people say, God, it's so nice to see you on TV. You do such a great job, because what I know they're really saying is I'm so glad you don't stink. Because st- being bad is is embarrassing, that job. Being uh, argumentative and too opinionated, it's actually embarrassing. You might make $10 million a year doing it, but it's embarrassing. It's not intelligent. It's, it's not forward thinking. It's embarrassing. So when I come home and I see people and they say, man, I, I saw you. Like, you're really good at what you do. Like, I learned something every time you're on. That's the most humbling thing I could tell you about. Like it's, and it goes back to riding the fire truck. It's not about, it's not about what I did or what we did as a team. It's about who we did it for and who we did it with. So I try to apply that today because when I look back, I'm like, yeah, yeah, the games were great. 62 points was great. State championships, 47, the tournament championship record that'll never be broken now because it's gone. Um, Those are all great, but those are fleeting. But the fire truck ride with the with the team and the community members that came out to feel the pride that we felt that's that's unlike anything that that you can explain.
0: I do want to focus though on that sixty two point game for the simple <laughs> reason: before we talked, I was doing some prep and I came across it was about a six minute video recap of the television yeah. broadcast. I'm not mistaken, one of the voices was the great Mark Narducci, Mark Narducci doing, Ducci, yep. doing color commentary on it. You score 62. It, I think it's a playoff game against yep. Penn's Grove. And the thing that I noticed this, and when I say this, I don't mean this in a selfish standpoint. You watch that video. It is like you are playing in an empty gym. Yep. You are just out there shooting. The defenders didn't matter. Nothing mattered where you were on the court. It was incredible to watch. And I'm just curious. Cause that is the type of performance. I'm imagining the type of feeling that we all dream about when yeah. we're in the backyard. What yeah. is it like to be in that zone?
1: I always say it's like people talk about the zone. I say, well, it's when the defenders and sometimes your own teammates become movable cardboard objects, like they're inanimate, but they can move. And when they move, you just adjust, you know, you you play with instincts. You don't think you don't overthink anything. You just play with instincts. And that was one of those games. It was weird because they made up their mind they were going to play man-to-man again. And I had 43 earlier in the, in the season against them, maybe 49, I'm not sure. Uh, and then I had 36 against them earlier in the season. So I'm kind of like insulted that you're not going to run a jump defense at me. So there's that part of you that brings that arrogance, that you know, that ego of saying, you're, you're, you're sticking with this man-to-man. I'm going to torch it, like very calmly. And once once a few started to go, it, you know it it snowballs. And if you're playing man to man with one guy, and I'm willing to shoot 35 feet out, and they go in, you're in trouble. And if you don't adjust, the game's over. Uh, so I, so I think there's a point when when you do get in the zone like that, defenders are just mobile cardboard objects. That's it. You just whatever they do, there's a counter. Make them make them fall backwards. Step back, hit a three go down and play some half, half, (laughs) some, some barely effort defense, just so you can get the ball back. You know, that's kind of what that game was like. But I remember it was a game where I was actually really calm because it comes across in
0: the video. Yeah. I was, you were completely under control. Yep,
1: I was totally calm. I was totally under control. And, And at that time, I, you know, I was dealing with a lot of concussion issues there were times where I struggled to manage emotions. And it's one of the things I'm mean, even as an adult with, with the, the concussion symptoms that I have, like you've got to, you, you got you to gotta manage yourself. you got to manage emotions. And, and there were times where I struggled with that as a kid, but that was a game where I was really calm. And the frustrating thing is I don't look at that game as like, Oh, that was incredible. No, I, I just look at that game as that was my potential. So there were so many things that kept me from playing to my potential. Now not every game's going to be like that because it's just not going to be there. You're not going to have man-to-man coverage. You're going to have a triangle too with the two guys on you. So so yeah, you might score 30. Um and it didn't mean you didn't play well. But as a kid, you don't know that, right? As a kid, you you just kind of go with whatever. You're so momentary. You know what I mean? Like you just you're in every moment. Um and and in that moment I was calm, decisive, and in some way a little insulted that they thought they were going to play me straight up man to man and I wasn't going to prove a point. And, you know, we, we won the game. Uh, I I think the point was proven, uh, but it was one of those things that kind of started, that was our first game of the, of the, the state tournament. It was the second round. Cause we had a bye. it was the first game. The next game I had 49, the next game 30. And, and, and it just kind of snowballed where it's like, I just felt good in that state tournament, except for the, three foul shots I had to tie the game in Atlantic city. I missed the second. Um, and thank God for my boy, Dan McMaster's getting a steal and a uh, layup and goaltend to, to win our second state championship. So uh, that, that one was certainly a team effort, but um, the Pensgrove game was, was pretty special And it. I don't like to watch a lot back. I think my brother does more than I do. And I always like to say, Hey, you like who you were better than I like who I was. I like who I am now. And he's like, oh yeah, here you go. You're you're Mr. Humble. And I go, no, I said, I don't recognize that guy as much. But that game's pretty fun to watch. <laughs> like that was that was a I mean 62 points it was 31 in each half. And I should have had 75. I mean, so it, it was, it was, it was fun. It was also at a time when Duan Wagner was always on my heels for, you know, the the leader in scoring in the state. And that was when Camden wasn't in a conference. So they were playing some, some Podunk schools and he's scoring 100 points, 80 points. So, so there was a part of me that, that wanted to put up some numbers to make sure I stayed at the top. I couldn't have a freshman outscoring me.
0: And we need to take another break. We will continue our chat with John Crispin right after this. This is one on one. And we are back on one on one, continuing our conversation with John Crispin. So you mentioned. Joe makes an impact at Penn State right away. You're getting recruited. Was your goal always to go where Joe went or was it yeah. just opportunity timing? You know, yeah. how did the decision to go to start your career at Penn State go? Well, it's it's funny. Um you know, I,
1: I look at it like look the Lord makes better decisions for me than I make for myself because initially when I was being recruited by everyone, Kentucky, Duke, North Carolina, like Jay Williams and I, we're going to go someplace together. Uh, We played together on a Nike AU team, myself, Jay Williams, and Dante Jones. And when I broke my back, everybody dropped off. Like today, it's a little different. Like HIPAA laws and everything else. Like the, the injury board at the Nike camp isn't there anymore. Like some guys just aren't playing. When you walk in and see an injury board that says, John Crispin out, broken back, you're done. It was it and it was like and you look back and you go these are all things that needed to happen for my life to happen the way it was supposed to happen right like i wasn't supposed to go to kentucky and be that guy like i was supposed to go play with my brother and when when duke north carolina kentucky all these schools michigan everybody fell off because i broke my back penn state always just kind of had an open offer where it's like look if you want to come there's a spot like it's it's it, we don't need to make the offer like it's you've been hanging out here you You're a junior in high school, hanging out with your brother, playing with Pete Lasicki and Dan Earl, and you're scoring four out of the seven points. Like You can do this. There's no question. And I was a better athlete. Um, I broke my back, and that changed everything. Jay Jay actually tried to convince me to go to Rutgers with Dante. And I'm reluctant to tell this story because I think Rutgers people will hate me forever. Uh, At least I'll tell it now because I'm no longer at the Big Ten Network. but. Jay said, look, let's go to Rutgers. You, me, and Dante. And we had a kid named Ronnie Rollerson who went to Temple and another guy named Jamar Smith who went to Maryland. Our starting five would have come to Rutgers. You would have had Jay Williams, myself, Dante Jones, Ronnie Rollerson, and Jamar Smith who played high-level high level professional. It would have been a ridiculous team, but I had no desire to go to Rutgers and be the man. Like I didn't see Rutgers that way. Jay did, and I think Jay was on to something. He's like, no, 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 we'll, we'll win the Big East. Like, we'll, like, all the things he did at Duke, we would have done it at Rutgers. Yet, Jay was the best player in the country. He was the second pick of the draft behind Yao Ming. Like, I remember saying, Jay, like, you're the best player in the country. You go wherever you want. You don't want to go to Rutgers. No offense played play for Kevin Bannon. And then, like, they were a mess. It wasn't a great situation. And he says, we'll, we'll run the program. Let's go. And I think in that moment, there was no question. Every other option was eliminated for me so I could see clearly. And I remember my brother and the team, were, they were over in Italy on, a, on a, you know, a, a European trip. And I remember calling one of the assistants, Chuck Swenson. I just said, hey, um, by the way, I'm coming. And he's like, wait, you're, you're going to come to Penn State. I go, yeah, I'm telling you now. This is my way of telling you. I'm coming to Penn State. And I said, in, in addition to that, I want to set up an official but I'll be up there every weekend when you bring people in that are going to be a part of my class. So I was up every single weekend. I mean, it, there was no question I should have gone to Penn state the entire time. It was my home. It was already my family. And I was going to play with Joe. And, and to this day, Joe and I are about to start a, you know, I can't call it a podcast. It's just a conversation series because Joe and I have conversations and we want to bring people like Tom Izzo, Steve Peichel, Fran McCaffrey, all these, all these big coach K into the conversation. Not an interview, conversation. I said, initially, I was going to do that on my own because it's what I do in my career. But I said, Joe and I have always been at our best when we're together. You know, it, even as we're remembered, Joe isn't remembered as well as the Crispin brothers are remembered. John isn't remembered or even known to this day as well as the Crispin brothers were remembered. Uh, So I look at that and I say, man, like it was always meant to be that way. I just, I just had a roundabout way of getting there. I had too much arrogance, I had too much ego, um, to see clearly. But the injuries kind of helped me see clearly, and and I'm thankful for it because, man, I I really worked hard, spent a lot of time up at Penn State um, prior to my freshman year getting healthy to be able to play. Was the back of football injury? It was a little bit of everything. I had stress fractures coming into my freshman year from pitching. Again, like I, I think I was, I was very capable, but I wasn't trained. If, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. like I could pick up a baseball and throw it 90 plus miles an hour, but I wasn't trained to do so. And the damage I did to myself and to my body, it, because of that, because I played three sports and in the off season, I I pretty much played basketball. And then the month before the football season, I started my workouts for football because I knew I was going to have to run for my life, you know? Uh, i I was capable at a very high level, but I wasn't trained. And I think that really did damage. I mean, I had stress fractures. I played with them. I sat out a few games, my freshman year in football because I, I just knew I wasn't gonna be able to play basketball unless I sat out. Um, I dealt with it my freshman year with stress fractures, but it was my junior year heading in my senior years when they broke through. Uh, I, I never got them fixed. I never really had anything done. I just tried to play through it. And they broke through and I was, I mean, I, I couldn't feel both my legs. It was, it was bad. Uh, they wanted to fuse three vertebrae together, but I, I knew there was no way you could fuse L3, L4 and L5 together without me losing mobility and never being who I was. Uh, so I fought through it. I got better. I did a lot of rehab, got stronger. Um, but yeah, I think it was a combination of just is general overuse. Cause you know, if you watch me play basketball, I, I didn't just take layups and you know, not block shots. And just take threes. Like I, I, every day, what I had to prove myself. E- every day, I had to show you how good I was, and that, that I could dunk on you, and that that I could run through the linebacker as a, as a freshman football player. And when that running back or the, the fullback from Gloucester is is coming through the uh, it's coming through the line, I'm I'm going to take them on. And I think I just did a lot of damage to myself because I was capable. And then when, when more is expected of you, you keep doing it. So when you're throwing up on the field with a concussion, you, you just, play, you keep playing because people want to see you play. People want to see what you can do. Um, you know, there are people there to watch you, whether they're scouts or just people that drove an hour just to watch you play. So, so I had this sense of like, you're not going to be disappointed. Uh, and I think in the end, my body, my body has taken a toll. Um, uh, But while the body's taking a toll, it's also led me to where I've got. So I don't really regret it. I just wish I could get up and walk around a little bit easier and probably hit the golf ball a little further.
0: So when you get to Penn State, what is the – and I guess I kind of probably know the answer to that just because of the way you talked about you were up there all the time. But you're, you're coming in, your brother's established. What's the dynamic when you come on to the team? Is it smooth? Is it, Uh, is it adjustment? Like, what's it like? Well, I think, I think looking back in in
1: the moment as a kid, I expected because it was like, well, John could have gone anywhere and ended up coming here. You know, yes. A lot of that was due to injury. So at that point I I probably should have been back on a a level field with any other freshman. but I came in with the expectation that I'm starting and I think I came in with that expectation because the rest of the team did too tight as I renew Josie Klein heard new Jarrett Stevens, knew. Joe, knew. you know, Calvin booth knew because I was working out there with those guys before I got there. So I think there was a sense that like, I knew I could play at this level. I knew I could thrive at this level and I knew there wasn't anybody better than me. So, so I think deep down inside, whether there were guys that wanted to play in, in front of me, I think they knew um, Greg Stevenson was a, as a two guard who came in with my brother, he was two years older than me. When I committed, he transferred. I just look at that and even my brother will say, like, I just think guys knew, like, you were going to play. You were going to play a lot of minutes. And I did. I played 20, 30 minutes for most of my career there. So I think it was as smooth as it ever could be. But, but a lot of that came from being there, being present. I was there on the team before I was ever on scholarship. And that was because my brother was there and I spent time with him. I was up there almost every other weekend in the offseason just because, because I had A license and my parents were crazy enough to let me drive up there. Um, So I did. I spent a lot of time there. I was already on the team. I was already a family member. And uh, I think it made it as smooth as possible. I think what was tough for people, if I'm really thinking about this clearly, is the dynamic of Joe and I was tough. We were two strong-minded competitors where you'll see us throwing balls at each other, fighting over passes in a warm-up shooting drill. Yet in the same time, you'll see both of us take on challenges that no one on the team's willing to take on. Whether it's saying, guys, we need to talk to coach and we need to take it easy because we're worn out and we're going to lose the buck now. Like, we need to talk to him. And no one speaks up except Joe and I. And I think that dynamic was tough for people to catch up with, to say, all right, Joe is a strong-minded leader and John has this fearless conviction some some insecure people would call it entitlement. It's not entitlement. There's, clair, there's clarity with a fearless con- conviction. Entitlement doesn't have clarity. And there's a lot of insecurity in, in entitlement. We had a fearless conviction that was like, we know how to win. We do whatever it takes to win. We do more than anybody else. So let's go. Um, I, I think that dynamic was the adjustment that people needed to make because we both led in our own way. Joe obviously was the leader, but I had my ways too. And I think once people caught up to our differences, they started to see how those differences complement one another, but also complement the team. And that's where we really found our stride. When I was a sophomore and Joe was a senior.
0: That season, you guys go to the Sweet 16. Uh, I've covered that team for much of the season. It was fun. You guys were fun. Everybody... Outside of the state college, kept looking for reasons why you shouldn't go to the NCAA tournament, yeah. why this shouldn't happen. Uh, but you were a group that complemented each other. I think I remember the big win over Michigan State in the Big yep. Ten tournament that kind of that was like the the ticket puncher. Like yep. once you got that win, yep. it was just a matter of what number was going to be next to your name in, on Selection Sunday. Uh, what are your favorite memories of that year when you guys uh, make that run to the sweep Sixteen?
1: Well, I think for a lot of people that remember, because it's funny, it sticks with people today. I, I was actually playing at a golf course in French Lake, Indiana, Pete Dye course in, in in French Lake, Indiana. There's old there's old resorts there that you would never I thought French Lick was about Larry Bird, but it's where my wife and I got married. She's from Indianapolis. So we got married out there and we went back for our five year this past year. And my caddy was a Kentucky grad. And he kept saying, He goes, Man, I just don't you you look familiar, your name's familiar. Like I just I don't know where I know you from. And, and you know, look, I'm not, I don't want to like start naming my, I don't want to start like listing my qualifications or my experiences to maybe find the one that connects. So I just kind of say, oh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure where you're from. And he goes, oh, I'm a Kentucky guy. And I go, oh, you're a Kentucky guy. Are you a Hoops fan? And he goes, is that where I know you from? And I go, maybe. I said, I work in television now. And he goes, oh my gosh. He goes, I do. I watch you, watch it in the studio. He goes, wait a second did you have a brother? And they go, yes. He goes, are you, are the Christian brothers. And I go, yes. He goes, you're the brothers that torched Kentucky for 57 or 58 points. I go, yep. That that's the one to this day scoring. I think I had 26 Joe at 31. So, so 57 of our team, 73 points, or 74 points to this day, that is one of the most memorable things for people because Two little, let's just call it what it is, six-foot white guys go into Rupp Arena and put up 57 points against guys that aren't supposed to lose. They didn't lose a home opener in 34 years. And we came in and did that. Uh, That one, to this day, people still remember that and talk about it. And even my caddy at the Pete Dye course in French Lick was like, oh, my gosh, that was – when was that? I said, it was 2001. He goes, "I Yes or it was 2000, it was November 2000. And he goes, he goes, there was a game earlier this season where a guy went off for 25 points and they were ranting and raving about this, this score and why they don't have more shooters and on the radio station, they said, but it was nothing like what the Crispin brothers did at and, Kentucky. And that to me, like that makes that game special for me and Joe personally, my father and mother and little sister were right behind the bench. My grandfather and grandmother, my grandfather who played against Kentucky in the Final Four, was right behind the bench to witness that. And you know, I think we did it honorably. We weren't loud and obnoxious, and we were just happy to be there and happy to prove that we belong. Uh, so, so that to me jumps out personally. But ultimately, winning against North Carolina in the NCAA tournament, and it and it goes back to the the fire truck ride in, in Pittman. It was landing the plane back in state college, coming back from, from new Orleans to see thousands of people there waiting at the airport, just to welcome you back, you know, to see, as they drove our bus downtown, people outside, like borderline rioting. I mean, look, you're around for some of this. You saw it. It was madness. And to be able to bring that to people that you don't know, but that root for you, man, that's special. So I, I would say like, personally, for Joe and I, that Kentucky game was was it. That really put us on the map. That got Sports Illustrated. That got Slam Magazine. All these things that we we just, we never even would have imagined in our careers. Uh, that game did that. But then to, to cap it off for the university, for State College, for those people that we love and to this day still love, um, so many of them we still see today. To be able to bring that home, that was, there's nothing more special than that. But it hurts. I mean, for us, People see the success and I say, but we lost. Like there were reasons why I transferred. And again, I was a 19 year old when I transferred. So who knows what those reasons really were, 19, 20 years old. Um, But one of the things that bugged me was we celebrated a sweet 16 appearance as if we won a national championship. That bothered me. Uh, So I didn't handle that well. But at the same time, it's like I, I do remember the feeling of bringing people joy. And again, the pride that people had of like saying, yes, Penn State basketball has done it. We are relevant. Um, I'll I'll never forget that. And I still am reminded of it every time I go back to Penn State today.
0: The team that beat in the Sweet 16 was Temple. What do you remember about that? Because that was one of the John Chaney's teams that, you know, made the tournament, but was one of his more unlikely runs to the Elite yeah. Eight. What do you remember about that game specifically?
1: Well, one of the things that was kind of undocumented because we didn't want to talk about it. We, we wanted to keep things under wraps is I was really sick all week. I didn't practice. I didn't eat. I lost 15 pounds. I had walking pneumonia from the prior week in, in uh, New Orleans, which maybe I had too good of a time. I don't think I had that good of a time in, in New Orleans. People like to say, oh, you probably got sick going out. No, we didn't go out, but we were out, you know, so who knows how I got it. Um, I was really sick. Uh, I didn't practice all week. Uh, Everybody sat at the front of the plane. I laid on the floor in the back. Like it, it was, I didn't think it was going to be a play. All I ate was ice cream before the game because I just, my throat was so closed up. I couldn't even eat. Um, I shaved my head that game because I just felt like I was so sick. I just, I don't know. I did something to feel better. It didn't work. I was terrible. Joe was terrible. We couldn't make shots. Um, And they did just enough, but the way they played, it forced you to make shots. So if we didn't make shots, we didn't win. And somewhere along the line, we didn't make shots and we stopped shooting. And I I remember that part where it's like, I I wish I knew then, again, what I know now, but ultimately I wish I knew then that you just got to shoot through it. But we didn't do that back then. You know, back then it's like, if shot's not falling, you stop shooting, you get something else. Well, we weren't going to win that game inside. And Kevin lied and a bunch of the big Ronnie Rollerson, a bunch of big boys. Like we weren't winning that game inside. We needed to space the floor. We needed to get him to the chase. We needed to eventually make some shots, but we did, we got away from that. And, and ultimately we lost to a team that we beat earlier that year and, and lost to a team that we should have easily beaten. And I think Joe knows we, uh, we would have gone on to play Michigan state in, in the elite eight team. We just beat team. We had confidence against team, team that we had a good defensive strategy against last time around. Um, so, so I think when we look back at it, we say we should have gone to the Final Four. And at that point, look, in the, in the world of basketball, college basketball, a national championship is, is obviously the, it's, it's the mecca, right? It's, it's the holy grail of college basketball. But it's the road to the Final Four for a reason. The Final Four are, are the, the teams that were somehow able to do enough just to keep playing, just to find a way to keep winning. After that, anything can happen. Uh, so I think just getting there, that would have been special. And I think we all look back at it and say, we we could have done it. Um, me being so sick didn't help, but we just didn't play well.
0: So you mentioned transferring to UCLA, and I'm curious, you start your career at Penn State where it's football, football, football. Yeah. And I hope the basketball team does well. Yeah. And then you transfer to UCLA, you know, where, where John Wooden, the greatest coach in college basketball history, built the dynasty. You know, you talk about hallowed ground, Pauley yeah. Pavilion. What's it like, kind of that shift in dynamic of what a basketball player is in the puzzle of the athletic department?
1: You no, know, I'll tell you, I was actually, and I mean no offense to UCLA for that, I was disappointed. Um, When I went to UCLA, I thought basketball was the most important thing there, but the reality is you're in Los Angeles. There's a lot of distractions. Uh, People talk about pro sports towns and how hard it is to be Minnesota in Minneapolis, right? Like this is Los Angeles. This isn't just a pro sports town. This is numerous pro sports in this town, but there's also everything else. Uh, Hollywood is there. Music is there. Everything is in Los Angeles and it's all there to keep you distracted from, from what it doesn't have that actually matters, right? Community family you know, connectedness, um, a blue collar work ethic. We had none of that. And I think one of the challenges that I saw early at UCLA was that we, we at UCLA hung our hats on our tradition and our history, but did nothing to make ourselves better going forward. Um, we had great players, but not tough competitors, right? They're great talent, but not killers, right? Something was missing. And I think ultimately what was missing was just reality. We had so much talent and we never lived up to our potential. And I think a lot of it was, there were so many distractions and the distractions that are there for players are also there for the fans. They only come and they only really support when you're winning at the level they're accustomed to. And that's final fours and national championships. Ben Howland went to three straight final fours and, and got fired a few years later. Like it's not an easy place, man. Like, I think that's that was a shock to me, but also we didn't have a practice facility at Penn State. We had amazing facilities when I was at when I was at UCLA. We had to get the managers to open up Pauley Pavilion to get shots up, or go get shots up in the Wooden Center, which was the student recreation center. I mean, good luck going to what do they call the the is it the what do they call the rec center at Penn State? I forget what they call it.
0: Rec Hall. Is it is it no, Rec Hall? No, that's the old
1: that's the old Rec Hall. But there's, there's like an uh, intramural facility, the IM building. Yeah, it's the IM building. If we had to go get shots up while people are trying to run five-on-five, like what kind of big-time basketball is that? Now, over the summers, I played with Magic Johnson and, and Kenyon Martin on my visit, you know, and and then would play with my team was Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Earl Watson, and Dante Jones and myself. And there were four court or three full courts of that. So, so that was great, but from a team building aspect, we were not connected. And we weren't connected because everybody was into their own thing. And ultimately, I left Penn State. And what I learned was all the things that made Penn State great. I tell this to people today. Look, I went to UCLA to find humility. I didn't know that's what I was going there for, but that's what I went there for. I found humility. I found a little understanding that I don't matter as much as I thought I did. And that was a good thing. I needed to learn that. But at the same time, I tell people to this day, you know, there's still people out there that that do not like me because I've transferred from Penn State. And I tell those same people, I appreciate Penn State for what it really is more so than the people that stayed there for four years because they never saw it any other way. I saw it another way. And I had dreams of transferring back. And I had thoughts of, of, could I ever go back to Penn State? Like I had those thoughts. I had those dreams because I realized what made Penn State great. And what made Penn State great was so personal to me that it might not be what other people like. You know, it's, again, community, family. It's going bowling as a team regularly and going to horses and hanging out like we're family members, not just teammates. I miss that. Uh, It's the community that rallies around you, whether you win or lose. Um, That was special, and it made winning for them that much better. It made winning at UCLA feel empty. You You beat Kansas, the number one team in the country, and they go, hey, well, you should. I'm like, they're the number one team in the country. We're not. We're ranked 24th. Like, we weren't supposed to beat them, but that's the attitude there. So so that was a challenge. I mean, there's so many great things about UCLA. Don't get me wrong. Got my degree from there, played with great people, worked with great people, was led by great people. Uh, but ultimately, for me, what I missed were the little things about Penn State to me that make it great.
0: After college, I think you played a couple of years overseas. Like uh, what was because one of the things with overseas basketball, when I talk to people, I'm amazed at the wide range of experiences from it was incredible. I want to move my family back there in 15 years to I had to get off the court before they set it on fire. Like it's there is a wide range. Where did you fall on that spectrum from your experience? I I think I
1: fell in every area of that spectrum. Uh, right, where there were moments where in Spain they were chanting, Cinco, Cinco, Cinco. Like, I never wanted to leave. Right. And then you go someplace else, and we're playing in Madrid, and they're throwing rolls of quarters on the flat. they weren't quarters, obviously, but they're, they're throwing coins at you. Like, you're like, where are we? What are we doing? This thought this was big time basketball. And then you get fired and you get sent home. Three months into your your or three and a half months into your time there, and you're waiting on a paycheck that that is a month late, and you're never going to get it. And then you start to go like, "This stinks. I don't want to do this. Like, like I, I want to go and commit and find a way to win." But that's not the world over there. And I think that's something that Joe persevered better than I did. Uh, and Joe will tell you it's, it's similar to him coaching, where it's like he did it because he had to. Right? He was a competitor. Joe's driven which means he sees a destination and he goes towards it. I'm motivated, which means like my motivations are, are different, right? Like I want to feel good about what I'm doing. I want to be able to build something that I actually like. I got to a point where I said, I'm not motivated to do this anymore. I'm not motivated to persevere. I, I played in Spain, played in Ireland, played in the ABA for a couple different teams. But ultimately my last stop was Ireland. And I said, that was it. Like I broke my risk playing against terrible basketball players. I wasn't getting paid that much and I just didn't want to be there anymore. And I I didn't really like playing basketball anymore. Uh, so I took, it's funny. I took a year off and most people don't know this, but I took a year off where I just said, you know what? I'm done. I'm just going to do God knows what, well, I did commercials. I did some commercials, did a Coke commercial. Did a I saw the Coke commercial on the same. (laughs) It was crazy. Yeah. So I had a target print ad. I was a Sony print ad. So technically I could say I was a male model at one point in my life. Um, but I did. I, I made some money doing that stuff, and it kind of allowed me just to work out and get healthy. I got healthy for the first time, honestly, since I was probably 14 years old, where I felt good. Um, I was playing at the men's gym at, at UCLA with all these pros. I had five NBA workouts. I thought I was going to go back to playing. It, it seemed obvious. I, I got an invite to play on the L.A. Defenders, which was the G League team, NB, DL. I think it was at the time. Um, and I had plantar fasciitis uh a second workout with the lakers and i had plantar fasciitis i got an injection in my heel to get through the workout when i got done the workout i came into the locker room to get changed and i had torn the fascia in my foot didn't feel it it tore out and i remember the the trainer i think it was gary viti at the time um he just looked at he's like you like i don't think you're playing this year like it's just like i don't know what you do for this because it's going to cause other problems i ended up partially tearing my ACL, uh, you know, because my foot had totally turned inward. Uh, So I thought I was going to go back to play. And what I would have done, I would have gone to vet camp and just tried to get a job overseas and make good money overseas. But that was that moment where it was like, I'm done playing. Like, and I was okay with it. I did everything I could do to get back and play. I was in the best shape of my life. And my body just couldn't hold up because I did too much damage to it as a, at a young age, uh, and probably just did too much you know, three sports my entire life until I was a sophomore in high school, like at a a high, high level, junior in high school, really at a high level. Um, so I think it, the end of my career was forced upon me, but it was necessary. And somewhere along the lines there in the next year or two, you had to step back and say, all right, who am I number one? And what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And, and throughout all that, I was doing camps and clinics and workouts and working with different teams, thought I might coach, but ultimately it's like, I, I just, I don't really want to coach. And Andrew Siciliano, who was the original red zone guy on direct TV, you know, we, we see, we see red zone channel now, but Andrew Siciliano hosted the red zone. He had a radio show and he said, John, I saw your commercials. Like you, you're comfortable. You're, you're good. He goes, why don't you try broadcasting? I said, look, I would love to try broadcasting. How in the world do I do that? Um, he said, come on my radio show, do a 15 minute hit on my radio show. Just talking about college basketball. So I did that next thing. I know I'm getting calls from shows all over the place to say, Hey, will you come do our show, do our show? Now I'm hosting. Now the next thing you know, I'm doing television. So it, it really grew pretty quickly. Uh, it never quickly, as quickly as you'd like it to grow. Cause I wasn't a huge name. I wasn't JJ Reddick. Right. Um, but I was good at what I did. So there were always opportunities, just not life-changing opportunities. Uh, so, so inevitably, it it, it did kind of lead me into a career, and I did throughout that time get into commercial real estate because I wasn't doing enough in broadcasts. I was bored, and I lived in Los Angeles. If you're not making two hundred thousand dollars a year there, you're not surviving. Uh, so I did. I worked in commercial real estate. I got really good at broadcasting when it became a hobby, and and here I am making a career out of it.
0: Final question: Do you you've had such an interesting ride to this point? Do you Often take a step back and think about it and think about how all these things kind of led you to where you are today?
1: Always. Um uh, that's the philosopher in me. Uh there, there there's so much ancient philosophy that I find to be so relevant because it points out the human condition and the patterns of thoughts within humans. And and I'm I'm not above that. Right? We all like we think we are throughout times in our life, like, well, I, I'm above that. No, 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 I, I'm at a different place. We aren't. We're just people. We're humans. And we tend to have the same fears and tendencies. Uh, and And a lot of times those things are cyclical. and I look back at my career and I'm like, the mistakes I made always brought me back to a certain point. They brought me back to my foundation, right? The failures brought me back to a foundation. And, and ironically enough, the successes in my life also brought me back to my foundation. So, somewhere along the line, I grew up and realized that my foundation was good. The house I built wasn't. And ultimately, it brought me home to Pittman, New Jersey. I mean, I live two blocks from my childhood home. I see my parents every day. I see my brother and talk to my brother every day. His kids come over and play with my two year old. Like, my life is so good uh, for all the right reasons. Because it is based on a foundation that was established for me that was really, really good. The walls we put up over time, they come and they go. Uh, But ultimately, I will always fall back on this foundation. And I think ultimately it allows me to just be better at what I do because I understand what it's really all about. It's not that important. We're not shooting rockets into space. We're not curing cancer. We're just talking about basketball. How can you make it better? That's it. And if I'm living here, how can I make where I live better? It's. It's so much easier to simplify your life. And ironically enough, things start to work out a little bit better when you do. So I, I'm glad that I suffered through what I suffered through. You know, I recently had surgery to remove my entire large intestines. I have no colon. Uh, I have 74 staples holding my stomach together. These are all things that just humble you. And when you're humbled enough, you realize what matters the most. And I think that my life through my injuries, through my successes, through my failures, it ultimately brought me home, but, but it brought me home with peace. Uh, So I'm, I'm thrilled to be where I am professionally, but like I said, if that doesn't work out, if I could coach the high school as a volunteer assistant and help my brother with Crispin basketball, that's a darn good life.
0: John Crispin, this was tremendous. Thanks so much. My pleasure, man. Anytime. This is good. This is my hibernation season. So I got a lot to say. And that will do it for this week's episode. Many thanks to John Crispin for being our guest. Now, if you like the show and you want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at 101Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at leon 1060 Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.